Hello, unfiltered friends. Some of you might be a little confused as this episode was already uploaded, but I'm inviting new friends. I've always thought that a video element to this podcast will be very important. I am thankful that I hired an editor, hi Bilal, and we now have the full conversations over on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash unfiltered friends podcast. And I'm starting with a very important episode with my dad. So if you want to see what he looks like, go to youtube.com slash unfiltered friends. And I am excited to share the video element. Welcome to the Unfiltered Friends podcast, where we humanize your favorite creators through their personal stories and then learn something from them. I hope you feel inspired by today's guest. And if you do, share it with someone who needs it. So without further ado, here is Unfiltered Friends. So you're my first uh, my first guinea pig. What? Hold on. Actually, now that I think about it, this is retribution. I was your first guinea pig in a much bigger way. Okay. What way was that? <laughs> I, I was I mean, the, life. I was yes. I was the first one you gave the birth to. Well, mom did. You were part of it. Let's not get into the discussion about how that happened. Okay. I've noticed that throughout the course of my life, the way that I view masculinity uh, tends to not fall in the common category. Um, I think that's not always other people's fault that they end up kind of stuck in that because you you know what you're taught, but you also have control over where you go. But ultimately I'm able to do that because I had an example to follow and not everybody has that. So I guess the purpose of this conversation, I want to find out like what it was like for you, you know, what examples you had and how you got to your idea of how to guide me to be a good man. Cause it's really hard doing what, I mean, you've, you've witnessed how hard it can be to be in the public eye as, as much as I am, you know? And I know a lot of times you wish you could save me from it, but I think this is the battle that I have to go through if I'm going to be in this space. And I, I like being in this space. It is a bit of a sink or swim situation. So let's, um, I mean, let's go back to the beginning, back to 1975 when you were born, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me tell me how masculinity was modeled to you when you were a kid because you had your uh, your biological father and then you had a stepfather and then you had a teacher and I'm sure there was any a grandma do you can you bring yourself back to how masculinity was modeled to you from your father? Well, I have no memories of my father. Right? He left the scene when I was three. So what happened there? Well, um, my uh, mother and my father were both, you know, happily married, but he was an alcoholic. Hmm. And he was, my, by all reports, he was a super intelligent guy, you know, could do math in his head while reading the newspaper, stuff like that. Sounds familiar. Um, very charismatic. He was a car salesman, which I guess it goes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the alcohol just led him to make a lot of self-sabotaging things and eventually got to the point where she was tired of bailing him out or rescuing him and things like that. So um, 
so this was about when I was about two and a half or three. Um, Do you have memories of her during that time and how she coped with things? Or were no, you too young? No, I was too young. Yeah. Or do you feel like also, because it seems like grandma really sheltered you from a lot of things or tried to. I think that's true. I mean, there was a lot of drama going on in her life with her own family. She was estranged from her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really begin to understand you know, her earlier life until um, probably the last five years before she passed. Um, and little things started to leak out, mostly through my older brother. David, mm. who was 12 years older. Mm. So David was really kind of the masculine figure that I had mm. uh, because uh, he and and mother were a, a team. They were, and they, they fully embraced that. They, so to certain, to, for the mo- most part, uh, I think he was really my father figure within the early years, even in the presence of my stepfather. Did you have you ever had have you ever told him that? No, not really. Why I mean, not? Because I don't think I realized it until now. No, oh, that's a beautiful. <laughs> that's a beautiful yeah. thing about these conversations. Like all these like little nuggets come out that you just never really recognized. So, what version? What what kind of example did he set for you back in that time that you can remember? Well, he was he was very artistic and very tolerant. Um, but he's a fierce defender of mom. So the memories I have, particularly like when we were in Estes Park and stuff like that, was um, him going toe-to-toe with Larry just before he went into the Navy. Larry was my stepfather. Um, and there was violence involved. And so I'm, we're out in a cabin in the, in the woods, so to speak, and no place to go. Um, and, you know, I saw him... Uh, you know, chest up and front him at 17, 18 years old mm-hmm. and, and say, not, it's not happening here. And that, that kind of burned an image of, of uh, defending your family and stuff like that into my brain. When he went into the Navy, I really felt lost. Because he was, he was your, so before we get into his story, yeah. let's rewind. So you don't have a whole lot of information about, your 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 dad a biological dad no so how, was, how has that affected you like i have you and right. i have this guidance system and i have this like i'm very much like you in so many ways how i guess you had david in a way but he's still your brother right so you know the uh i think my makeup is actually a composite of everyone i passed so, you know, Larry um, rescued my mom, and, that, and we kind of get the sense of that. Um, I think they actually did love each other. Um, but he, he had a, his own history, and for some, I think that history was starting to catch up with him. I don't know whether it was a form of marriage or something like that. But one of the consequences of that is that it seemed like we moved abruptly a lot. Mm. And looking back and talking to, to my older brother, it seemed like he was running from something. I never knew what that was. Um, he liked to kind of model himself as, you know, almost like a a mob-like guy, you know? So how did he enter your life? Let's get back to, let's go to the beginning. How, like, how old are you when Larry shows up? Three. So it was an almost immediate transition from your biological father to this. As in, as in many, many cases up until we were in high school. It was abrupt. You know? Yeah. It just one day 
we were at home and the next day we were in the back of a car. Hmm. And I suppose you're too young to even ask why you just kind of. No, we kind went. of slept in the back of the car and rolled with the. And rolled with the David rolled. didn't ask or David knew and didn't tra- and didn't answer. Well, he, we didn't ask him and what he knew. I imagine he knew most of it. David never, never really talked about it. And I think that's because mom never really talked about it. And then they were pretty tight as a team. So mm-hmm. we didn't need to know and it wasn't going to benefit us in some fashion. No, we did. We didn't know. So in the beginning, when Larry first enters, was it immediately because he was an alcoholic as well? He became alcoholic. I think in in the early days, it just seemed like we were moving from job to job to job. Hmm. And I didn't get the impression of him being particularly uh, abusive or anything like that. You know, we were. It just is what it was. Um. But we never seemed to stay in any place very long. And, um, and the one thing I, one of the positive things, and I still view it as a positive thing, is that we did everything. We culled green beans in Oregon. We did roofs in Nebraska. Uh, it, you know, you've seen the pic- map we did where we tried to figure out why we we're in that town. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we modeled our house in Effingham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, so he was he was ex- very handy and basically had the a- a- attitude that there wasn't anything he couldn't fix. Uh, and particularly since we were with him, uh, we we learned to do those things as well. So most of my handyman skills came from him. And the idea that there was no job that was too good for you, mm. you know. So because uh, you got your first job at twelve, right? And this wasn't yeah. like uh, I'm getting myself some candy money. This is, we need to eat. That's true. Um, I think for up until I was about, actually until I left home, most of the money I earned as at jobs went to the household. Mm-hmm. And they turned it over to mom. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, my the story of my first job was it was in Effingham. Mm. And he said, well, we need to go get a job. Cause we, and so I walked down the street to a, um, it was a motel and I didn't know what I was going to do. And, but I had grown up through a lot of different schools and been a lot of different places. And so one of the things it does, it makes you fearless in these situations. So I walked up to the manager and I saw a person coming out and, and I, I use this as a meme for my life. I go, I don't know what that person is doing, but I bet you two days I can do it better. And he goes, Okay. They must not have liked that employee very much to just to just look at a random 12 year old and be like, yeah, I mean, if you can do it better, I'll just give you the job. So, you know, I was cleaning rooms like that. But it, it turns out that she actually was better than I was. Oh, was she? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he liked the chutzpah so much. He put me to work on the switchboard in the office at, oh. answering answering calls. So I had that job for the summer and doing, you know, refilling pop machines and stuff like that. But it was that attitude that I can do anything mm. uh, that uh, gave, you know, his, whoa, mm. you know, balls on that guy. Yeah. Uh, and that has basically been my approach to anything new. Uh, you know, even as a professional, I would say, if you can give uh, me the same chance you gave that guy, I can do a better job. And and the, tr- the trick with that is you actually do have to do a better job. Um or find other value. So um, that's how I got my first job was basically 
um, walking into a place and saying, you know, um, take me on. Um, I think after Effingham, at that point, we were working as caddies at the uh, um, Urbana uh, Champagne Country Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why we were living in Urbana, which was, you know, um, so that was a 40-minute walk or a 50-minute bike ride. Mm-hmm. I got my first bike because of that. Um, and then when we got to be older, we actually painted apartments in the apartment complex that my mom and stepdad were managing. Mm-hmm. And that actually brought in pretty good money because she paid us like anyone else. But still, most of the time, it was going to support the household. In the beginning, was it good between you guys, or was it pretty immediate where you could sense that there was something off about your interactions with Larry? I would say it took a couple of years. You know, I remember the first time I started seeing the dark, darker side of him, or at least I recognized the darker side, was when, again, we were in Colorado, Estes. Mm-hmm. And um, so at that point, I was just in first grade. So young for that, but so it's, was, what I've noticed about like from being, I was a step parent for a while and they were pretty young is like kids. I don't know if it's different now than it was back then, but kids see what's going on. It affects them. They sponge it. Well, it does. And so the, the, the thing we noticed about him was that if you, uh, showed weakness or anything like that, um, that, uh, it would, it would draw him out. So the funny story I tell is about the difference between how people respond when they're in pain. Hmm. So when I when I um, married uh, uh, Kathy, your mother, um, she would I'd hear "ow" and I would come flying down the stairs to see what was bleeding. That's how I react now. Right, I take "ow" very seriously, <laughs> and and she go, oh, I stub my toe or I bang my finger or something, and they go. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it, in our case, um, if you said "ow," it brought you know it brought uh, annoyance or uh, you know uh, deprecation. You know, it, it, he would he would essentially attack. I mean, it's like it's like blood in the water. He would attack if right. someone complained in any way, shape, or form. Well, he would get excited, and then and then he would start yelling and stuff like that. So very quickly we learned that if unless you're bleeding, uh, you don't make any sound. So that, that had to have been a really tense environment to be in. It became that way. It, huh. be, it certainly became that way. So I would say sometime I was like twelve. Um, let's see, what is sixth grade now? Uh, sixth grade would be like yeah, twelve. About, from about twelve to the point when I left home about. When I was about fifteen, six, I was sixteen. So about, so there was a large part of the time where basically we would go to our rooms and hide out, mm-hmm. because we didn't want to in, in, uh, start anything. So working was a way to escape that, and school was a way to escape that. In your adult vision now, have you have you spent much time thinking about why Larry acted the way that he did, or just kind of moved on? Well, for the most part, I moved on, but I think um, I would say in the sort of the middle years of that uh, time, say from you know age six to about age ten or so, um, I think you, I think we were literally legitimately running from something. I we went 
from school. We went from school to school every twice a year. Twice a year. Yeah, thirteen schools and before high school. That's crazy. Um, they did get a job where they were managing apartment complexes as troubleshooters, and so they grandma and and right. Larry. And so grandma would handle the would take care of the books, get them up to snuff, and Larry managed the maintenance. And when they got up to snuff, they get transferred to another uh, apartment complex in the mm. same company. And so that was that was actually not a bad time. That was, we were in California, Orange County. Anaheim, that type of area. And um, uh, so there was, there, that was actually a fairly stable time from a personality standpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't conscious of a lot of strife. Uh, David was in the military at that point. Um, David kind of just fled. It seems that, it seems that he just, it was time for him to go. Right. And I think that was one of mom's great gifts to both David and myself and my brother is that when things got to the point where it was going to escalate to violence, she found a place for them to go. So in the case of David, when he, when he chested up to, uh, uh, Larry, um, uh, she recommended that he, go to the Navy or go somewhere. <laughs> Grandma's recommendations were always recommendations. <laughs> yes. And when I had my event like that, which involved an argument over whether or not I'd locked up my bicycle. Yeah. Uh, well, just tell a story. Well, we, we lived in an apartment complex and then we rode our bikes back from the job. Uh, we were at the caddying job and I put it downstairs. I had forgotten to lock it up and he got mad because it wasn't locked up and he dragged me downstairs and and in the process of that, he hit me with the chain. Wow. And I was about 15, almost 16 at the time. I took it away from him and hit him back. Where'd you hit him? Do you remember? Yeah, I just crossed the body. I don't... It, you were just defending yourself. Yeah, and... and you had never defended yourself physically previous to that? No, just verbally or something like that. Uh, I mean, we've been on the other side of the doors when he kicked it in. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it was. So at that point, I had had enough, and um, mom found a friend that she knew, which was Paul Kohler, mm. who was a minister in the area, and asked if he would take me in. Mm. That's how I ended up there. So last. So who who was Paul to you? He he actually was the chemistry teacher at my high school, but he was also a. Uh, Episcopalian pastor or minister mm. or something like that. I may have the denomination wrong, but he already had the, uh, he already was you know, fostering uh, kids my age. Mm. Uh, and so I had a, I had a buddy with him, um, Bill Kirkendall. Anyway, so it was one of those things where within a week I was out of the house because once you cross that line, cross that line, then it escalates, and that was true with Larry. He said, then he said, "Oh, okay, you know." This Seems is- like he had an obsession with control. Absolutely, yeah. And I know I've listened to some of your your stories about uh, narcissists and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. one of the things they do is provide financial control. Mm-hmm. And for the many years, it, you know, we were kind of 
you know, just barely hanging on. And he was the primary breadwinner. And if you're in a very unstable environment, you have to cling to that. Yeah. It wasn't until we got stable, and that's what happened in Champagne, that we got to the a point where mom built her own network of friends, her own had began to understand uh, how to where how to save money quietly. Um, got a few lawyers involved, things like that. But mm. That took time. So, describe describe those first moments when you're with Paul, who is now essentially a, a father figure to you. Mm-hmm. Was there an adjustment? period there where you were used to a certain way of being and it was different there or was it an easy adaptation i that's very curious because i often thought about it. i've been thinking about him lately uh um i think since <laughs> retirement you get a little reflective and paul was one of those guys that um he set the what you would call boundaries very early hmm. here's the rules of the house structure he gave a lot of structure, but he was very benevolent in the way he did that. Mm. Um, did you struggle with trusting men at that stage of your life, considering your history? No. Why do you think that that didn't happen for you, considering both father figures in your life were either like self-destructive or abusive or neglectful? Because the, the father figures I had... Mm. We're not that way. So my father figures go back to like, uh, let's see, fourth grade. We were in California. I walked into school for the first time, and I saw that. You know, I'm 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 one of those guys who, you know, your mom is brought in every other week, going, you know, what are you going to do? When are you going to get this guy in order? Because basically, uh, if I liked it, everything was fine. If I didn't like it, I, I acted up. Hmm. was basically pretty bored. Um, and some teachers tolerated it. You know, I got moved around a lot, but mom got, was called in a lot in the first four years of school. What would you do? Um, they'd create a ruckus or I'd argue with the teacher. One of the problems was is I went to so many schools that I got very good at a lot of different topics. So, you know, in Effingham, for example, you know, I've grown up in the space space race time in California. Math and science were, oh, yeah. were you know, top of shop there. Then you go to Effingham. Mm-hmm. And not a whole lot going on there. Not a whole lot going on there. And the uh um the math teacher there, there his big challenge for people was to be able to do uh regular mathematics in your head. And so he, he new guy comes in, he challenges, and he goes, okay, so let's see how good you are. He goes, you know, three times nine minus six plus five. And I give him the answer without even blinking. And he goes, huh? hmm. everyone else is kind of looking around. He says, let's try a different. He started multiplying things. And, and that was, you know, that was, that was like, so what? Um, so my brother and I were both very good at school. And, and that was where we, that was our safe zone. So, I can remember several times where we get slammed into lockers and say, you know, you got to be dumber mm. by her boyfriends or her, the football team or something like that. And I lived, I'd lived in the ghetto in Denver, as you know. Yeah. And I looked at that and I go, well, unless you have a knife. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that I was going to beat him up. They were bigger than I was. 
But most people respond, don't respond uh, positively to crazy. And the thing we learned was is that if someone comes at you, you don't have to, you have to out talk them, outrun them. Um, and at the last resort, you, you hit them where it hurts and then you run. <laughs> Who taught you that? Life. Hmm. You know, you, we've been in a number of schools that were really rough. You know, where whites were a minority. Uh, um, were, you know, downtown Denver at that time was not safe. Not safe. Walking home was a fun thing. Was it interesting walking through downtown Denver for you? Did it bring up anything or was it, is it so different that you can't really like place it? Well, the biggest thing was that you walk through it now and you go, oh, you didn't have the fear. Mm, this time. This time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think there were places where uh, we walked yesterday that brought back some of that. That's, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. I was bringing you through. I live where you did. Yeah. So, you know, the, the homeless people in the street, a couple, saw a couple of people doing uh, something interesting with uh, things in foil. Yeah, that was de- they were definitely doing drugs just straight up on the yeah. sidewalk. Yeah. So so the thing, thing I learned back in those days was be situationally aware, keep so, do social distancing so that you can run if you have to. And so that, that I found that raised my hackles a little bit. You would, uh, so, I mean... Larry was a part of your life for a while. The way that Larry would conduct himself was through violence and control, whatever whatever that looked like. Why didn't you model that at all? Well, like I said, one is we tried to be out of that away from him as much as we could. The biggest biggest thing at home was we had mom. So it seems like it seems like grandma kept you aware without maybe involving you. She's like, this is not right. Maybe. Um, here's how you protect yourself. Cause she was also a victim of it while she was trying to make sure you guys were okay. She was. Um, I mean, it wasn't like the violence was every day. It was very sporadic and you kind of, you could kind of see a buildup to it. It's usually mm-hmm. when something didn't go right in the business or something. Or what we learned, what I learned af- much at, well, after the fact is that the last three or four years he was, uh, we were with him. Uh, he had he had um, stomach cancer because mm. one of the things that used to get him off, get get him going was if we drank the milk in the refrigerator and he would just absolutely fly off. And we, I mean that that actually brought real violence. And we got well, milk. But what we realized is that that was he didn't like to, like to go to doctors and stuff like that. So he was sort of treating his stomach cancer with, with that with milk, milk and alcohol, and I don't know if he's doing anything else. But um, he was he died, you know, probably a year after we left from cancer. So okay, I want to talk about Grandma's escape because I'm like it's so funny. I pretty much knew nothing. So, so let's let's take a pause here. Because okay. You asked a question, I want to answer it. Okay. So why didn't I model Larry? Because I think, I mean, the reason I asked that is because as men, it, it, there's a lot of pressure to, or a lot of expectation of responding to either disrespect or advancements upon you with violence it's like you know if you can't handle it you're a bitch and that really is a way that people 
play on men's masculinity and it, it and the fact that you were able to look at that differently uh, like that's impressive but also not what you grew up watching let me go back to the story in fourth grade okay and this is really the the i would classify as a turning point mm-hmm. a real turning point so I, i'm used to walking in and trying to figure out it's kind of like the prison bus scene uh you walk in you're new and you want to see who the who the person you're going to have to compete with. It. That mm-hmm. was just a process we went through because it either a threat or an ally or something like that. And that is just adaptation to strange places. Most of the time, nothing came of it. Every once in a while, you'd say, okay, i got to deal with this guy. Yeah. Bullies mm-hmm. or thugs or um, just whatever. So, so, you know, Bob and I would have our radars out and we'd talk about the people in, in the area. And so I had to say, watch out for that guy and things like that. So we were, we were a team that way. Mm. But you know, the person who controlled it mostly was the teacher in the class. So ever walk up to someone and you look at them and you go, nope, not going messing with that guy. Yes. So this guy was Mr. Tang. Mr. Tang. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm walking up to, and these are all single floor classrooms. I walk up, he's putting the key in the lock. I not, not gone into the, in the classroom at all. I looked at him and I said, Oh shit. Mm-hmm. Because I just, just the whole, his whole aura was one of presence. Yes. It's not the guys who are screaming. No. Don't mess with me. I'll kill you, bro. It's the ones who just show up and you're like, Oh, okay. It's the calm ones. He was he was very calm. Yeah, he was very. It's because he could handle it. He was very. So he set the boundaries. You know, when I say this, I want you to do this. Everyone, keep your feet under your. And so I would test him. And so I, you know, why? Because that's how I understood what my limits were. Oh, okay. It's like I suppose kids do that. Kids do that. So I I have my foot out, and he'd walk by, and he'd stand, he'd step right on my foot, and he goes. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Was did I? Did I? Are you okay? I love Tang. Do I? Do we need? Do we need to send you to the hot, to the nurse's office? You know, to get that looked at. He had your number. I'm terribly, terribly sorry. And 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 the rest of the class is just going. Yeah. Because he they, basically, you step out of line, he steps on you, and in the most kind and friendliest way. But it hurt. Yeah. And I went. Hmm. I don't like that. Yeah. So he'd be in line and I'd, I'd, you know, be horsing around and he'd walk up and he'd go, time to get back in line. And he'd do one of these things, which is a, you know, a, basically a karate move. And he'd just touch me in the middle of the chest and it hurt. Yeah. And it was very quiet, very subtle. And I went, I love that guy. What about that made you love him? Because I found someone I couldn't challenge with my usual methods. So it made me think, well, how am I going? I still wanted to impress the guy anyway. I always liked to be first in class. That was our, that was our thing. So the only way I was going to impress him is scholastically. Mm. And so because every time I stepped out of line any other way, he would, uh, it hurt either psychologically or something like that. He just, he was a masterful person at that. After the first couple of weeks, it's like, I love that guy. Mm. Because I found someone I couldn't challenge that way. And the next, so he became a model. The next person was about sixth grade. His name was Mr. Benson. And it was interesting. He was, he taught um, science. Mm. 
So we're in the lab, and uh, we used to we used to kid him about being the inventor of the Benson burner instead of the Bunsen burner. Mm-hmm. He thought that he always thought that was hilarious, but he had a teaching style that says, "Look at this," and he'd show you something, and you go, "Wow!" And he really got me thinking about how the world works, and you know things like that, and and how you can affect it. Mm-hmm. And I love that guy. So I had a guy who was a disciplinarian. I had a guy who was a scientist. And then um, even in Denver, I had a, a guy who was, t- who was teaching graphic uh, industrial arts. He was teaching us how to draft. And he was so picky. He, was, he had a very, very high standard. And, I, and for me, there's, again, nothing better than an A. Uh, and so, you know, you'd be, you'd be a millimeter over the line on a line, and he would circle that and so i love those guys because they taught me focus and discipline and if i did it right a positive word from them wiped everything out yeah it seems like it seems like we really focus on a a father uh displaying the behavior but in reality, it's kind of almost like the it takes a village type attitude you know as long as there are strong Male, because there's certain things that, like, you know, grandma masterfully like did the best that she could. But there's certain things that you have to learn from other men. There's certain things that she can't teach you. Does that feel accurate to you? No, I think that's true. Um, there, it, there's sort of standards for behavior and stuff like that. Uh, she uh, grew up in the fifties, mm-hmm. and there was a. Uh, there was a standard for how men treated women. Um, and some of them are, are uh, you know, cultural. Some of them are just the, the process of the time. So, for example, in her time frame, men always walked on the outside or towards the street when they walked with, with their uh, mother or their woman. And they said, well, why do they do that? Well, it keeps them from getting... Um, so you die first. Right. So you died first. Or you're, you were protecting. Them. You're yeah, actually protecting them from splashing and stuff like that. Oh. Um, but that was considered the courteous way to be. Opening doors for women was not a sign of that they were weak. It was showing them respect and courtesy. I do that now, right? And so um, it's and it was it's so ingrained. It was so ingrained in us that that's was proper behavior that we don't even think about it. So, um, you know, I, I walk with your mom. It's, I'm walking on the outside. I change positions. So I, 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 because I feel uncomfortable, uh, if I don't do that, um, opening it's, doors, it's it, just, I don't even think about it. No. And, and I do that for, for anybody for which I'm with, because it's a way of showing courtesy. Yeah. And it's not, looking down on them or anything like that. It's just, it's just what you do as a gentleman. Yeah. I guess like, I I guess because I was raised by someone who has that attitude that I don't recognize that as something extraordinary. Yeah. It's just the way that you behave. Yeah. And when I started doing um, relationship coaching and I was working with only women, like those were, I had 20 clients and they were all women. I would listen to, the stories that they would tell me about what these mm-hmm. men were doing. And I use men very loosely in this case. And I was just, 
I found myself having to really take myself out of it and just listen to what was going on because it was so far beyond behavior that anybody would exhibit towards somebody else that I just like, I couldn't grasp it. So, so I think in today's terms, you know, uh, man opening a door for a woman, woman opening a door for a man. Uh, there was a period of time when that was, I was, I felt a little bit odd when that happened, when a woman opened the door for me, if I, in the, outside the family. I felt odd when I would get yelled at for doing it. <laughs> well, well there, there's that. But I think the, the, then, then I realized is that why should men be the only ones entitled to show courtesy? Okay, that's how I can get behind that. Yeah, so uh, so what do you do? You say thank you, and you hold the next door for them. And usually, going through two, you get you, you walk through, open the door for them. Balance, balance. So, um, but th- those those are physical uh, representations of of a more general uh, I- a relationship with the world around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one revolving courtesy, respect, honor, things like that. Um, and that was probably the thing that grandma was most, uh, formal on, you know, how to treat other people. Um, was she the one that taught you the concept of chivalry that you passed on to me? With the small C? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the whole small C? Sure. So chivalry with a small C is the idea that you give something with no concept of return. So not transactional interaction. Not transactional. I like to say there's three people kinds of people in this world. There are those who see the problem and comment on it. Oh, look at that. That piece of paper needs to be picked up. There are the people who need permission. Oh, look at that. There's a piece of paper. Should I pick it up for you? And then there are people who just pick it up, throw it in the trash, and move on. Because it's the right thing to do yeah. in their in their perspective. Well, it's something that needs to be done, whether it's right or not, is subjective. Subjective, but the point is, is they see a, if they see a problem, they fix it. So what's big C? So big big C is where you put all of the formal trappings, pomp, and circumstance. So big C really has to do with the historical uh, definition of chivalry, and this means fighting, and and uh, and that's really where some of the toxic masculinity stuff comes in because it's it's show. Chivalry with a small she is about execution. Chivalry with a big C is about show. It seems like big C chivalry really kind of get gets back towards transactional or having it not just be something that you're doing that's nice for either the world around you or the people around you. It's more so so that it's like, it's what they maybe call virtue signaling. You're doing something nice so that other people notice you're doing something nice just instead of just doing something wonderful for somebody else. Yes, and I think it's another uh, example of that is you're doing something because uh, it's expected of you, not because you want to. Mm, so it seems like little C is almost more impactful than big C. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, if you if you do something for somebody and and pass on, Go on to the, go on to your next thing. Their life is enriched, but so is yours. Yeah, well, being of service is one of the most fulfilling yeah, that's, things. That's really the key here. Yeah, that you're, you know, that, that being of service. However, you do that. Uh, one way to be of service, and this is still something I try to do you know, when I'm when I'm out in public, when I was at work, I had this thing where I wanted to make someone laugh full out in a day. Like you were conscious about this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> this was, <laughs> you know. How I, have you dealt with not being funny, though? Well, you know, <laughs> funny is one of those things where it's all about timing. <laughs> you know, so I, what would happen is, is that I said, I want to be funny that I would look it up in a book uh-huh. and figure out what, what, what that meant. And then I pick a target and I track <laughs> them throughout the day. And I wait for just the right moment and then I trip them. I would like to be clear that I was the target multiple times in my life. And that's why I'm so bad at torturing people with dad, with dad jokes now. Because I was, I was baptized by fire, by dad joke fire, by you. Well, I just wanted you to always be uh, aware of the, of the environment around you when things happen. So you understand <laughs> that not everything is as it seems mm-hmm. in a funny way. Yeah. But sorry, so, so anyway, so the, the point is, I, I had a whole series, I think the, a whole series of men that became my father figures. Mm. Each of them brought an element of, of my character. One of them was my fencing coach. Mm. Art Schenken in University of Illinois. Schenken, like most coaches, was not teaching me to be just a better fencer. He really was about developing men. That's so important. Like that's so important to have those figures. It is. I remember one time I lost about, and I threw my helmet down. And I saw he had this. He was a ger- one of these classic German guys, mm-hmm. you know. And I saw his eyes flick over, and he never liked to see that. He walked over and he said, "Pick that up." Mm. And he said, "You don't res- don't disrespect the equipment. You should know better because I repaired it." He says, "Now, what are you thinking?" So I lost. What did you heard this line? What did you do that allowed you to lose? Mm, that accountability is. And so, so, so what he would say is that win or lose any experience you have, when you come out of it, sit down and ask yourself, what did I do to allow that to happen, good or bad? Because you can't control the outcome. It's already an outcome. You can't control what other people did. You have no control over other people. You can only take the lessons from yourself. But that takes introspection, which is can be painful at times. I mean, you, I'll tell a story about you. I got out of a third relationship where it pretty much ended the exact mm. same way. And I call my dad. And this will give you guys an idea of, of why I take accountability. Because his response was loving at first and then a little punch in the arm. He was like, so let me get this straight. You've had three different relationships, three different women, and you had the same result in every relationship. And I was like, uh-huh. And he goes, you know what that means? I go, no. He goes, you're the problem. And you were absolutely right. You were absolutely right. And it still took me going to therapy to understand to understand why I was choosing those people, but I can't stop them from being that way. I can only control whether I entertain them or not. People are going to be who they are. I don't have control over that, but through learning to love myself a bit more and I have, I had very much that same challenge mentality. That's why I dated women who were so mean to me because I looked at it. I was like, Ooh, I'm going to show her, that I can handle her, but then I'm then I inherited mother's sensitivity, so <laughs> they yeah. would eat me up, eat me up. But that I chose them, 
repeatedly. So I, I, my observation there is that you were choosing to ride the tiger. Yes. So you can't get off. And if you do, they turn around and bite your ass. Yeah, I'm holier than the church with how many so, bites. So anyway, so the, the point is, is that I had a lot of, I was lucky. I had a lot of really good male figures who challenged me. Then I had one really strong female figure. Grandma. No, not, oh, mom. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew her in high school and, and I was a valedictorian there and I had, you know, I was big cheese in many ways. Uh, we met much earlier than that. And I dated her girlfriend. Uh, player. And, you player. <laughs> yeah. I've dated four people in my life. So you so player. Much. Yeah, me too. Anyway. So, <laughs> and, um, so when we decided, we, we started dating in college and, and the whole story behind that. But when we decided we wanted to go further, she wasn't so sure. Her father basically hated me, probably for the right reasons, um, which was I had no real um, – uh, I, was, I was still pretty much independent, a wild guy and stuff like that. And I didn't respect him in that mm. regard. And he was scary. So, but when we finally started started talking about going further in our relationship, we used to sit on our porch and we would have our um, uh, discussions of woe is what I used to call them, mm. because she would she set her boundaries very clearly. <laughs> she still does. <laughs> she still does, and. And we and we discussed what that was. And some of the boundaries had to do about differences in our energy. Um, yeah, my my approach to the world was pretty much like the Tasmanian devil. I was spinning ninety one ways. I love being really busy. You know, even in college, I was going to I was taking a full engineering load. I was fencing twenty hours uh, a week. Weekends, I'd lose the weekends. I was working because I was putting myself through school, except I had everything except my food and shelter mm -hmm. as grants. And, and I loved it. it was, you know, and she was the other, other kind of energy. Her energy was much slower and calmer and stuff like that. And she says, you know, we got to figure that part out because I can't keep up with you and you will get bored if you try to stay with me. And I said, and the, the meme we used was, okay, here's what we'll do. I'll go out, do my thing. I'll run around in circles while you're moving along. Mm -hmm. And when you, when it's time to talk, stick your foot out and trip me. And that works. It does. Hmm. So part of, so part of it was, is that there was times when I needed to go off and just, you know, let loose and go, whatever it was, usually on a project or something like that. Very single minded on those sorts of things. But every once in a while, she'd either literally or figuratively put her foot out, and we would sit down and talk about what she wanted to talk about or do what she wanted to do. Now, with over 40 years, or 44 now, uh, we've gotten to the point where it's kind of hard to understand that when those thing, events happen. But in the early 10, 15 years of marriage, um, you know, there were times when I felt like she was a kite. I was kind of towing her. Uh, and so... It, it took a while for me to sort of condition, and this again, sort of courtesy, is that when I'm around her, I slow down. When I'm by myself, I speed up. 
pretty much what it. what made you feel that that compromise was worth it because you it is a compromise you had to change not change aspects of who you are but maybe adjust aspects of who you are what made that was that hard was that easy what made you decide that you wanted to do that it was hard because it was a it was a fundamental change of behavior in some respects mm-hmm. and i was used to just basically accountable to myself yeah at least at that age and but i discovered i discovered that i loved her and i wanted to be with her and that was the only way i was going to do that but i also knew who i was because i had the ground into me um so we had to come up with you know, what is it we like about each other and what is it we don't like about each other? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean like in the sense of, you know, you know, I hate you. It's just that, you know, there, there's some things that I do that makes her nuts and there's some things that she does that makes me nuts. And I have basically decided that I don't care about those things. Mm. And it's a conscious decision. It's like, you know, when that happens, I kind of go, well, okay, next. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the rest of it that I want. Hmm. So that's true in any any relationship is that you know you know you may not like someone eating with their mouth open. I know that's true for you. Oh, it drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize it had a name either. Oh, it does? Misophonia. It's an actual thing. It makes me violently angry. Out of nowhere, I can't control it. So I just either plug my ears or remove myself because I'm not going to freak out about it because it's just someone chewing. For a minute there, I thought you were doing a Jar Bar Binks. Uh, uh, Jar Bar? Jar Jar? Jar Jar Binks. Uh, Come Jar- on, you're the nerd here. Yeah, Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> misophonia. <laughs> oh, my God. Get out. All right, this is over. <laughs> but anyway, so um, that that really was... We, we we probably spent a year and a half. Oh, that's a lot of time to do that. It's what I'm. Well, the reason I'm reacting that way is because in today's society, dating moves so much faster, and there are so many more what people perceive as options out there. So it's just like I don't really see a whole lot of what you're describing anymore. Someone who is willing to put in that kind of work. Because in their mind, well, if this doesn't fit what I want, I'll just move on to the next one. And they will say it to your face that, okay. But honestly, if that's the attitude that somebody has, I'm grateful for them letting me know that that's how they view the dating world. But it's just, it's so much different now. Yeah, I I think so. Part of it is there is an expectation that developing relationships is like like putting together some kind of puzzle or a car or it's like this checklist right and the reality is is that a relationship is a whole series of of interactions and you're constantly judging how you feel about that based on the interactions some of them are social some of them are emotional so like that and you actually have to go through a, a number of those kinds of experiences good times bad times I think I think a good argument is a, is is important. Mm. If you're if you uh, are both wanting to come to closure on it, and that's really the key. Then it's in that discussion that you discover what the other person's about. And you know, there's a there's a saying: never go to bed mad. So I think that the idea there is, you know, all arguments end by eight p.m. 
But come on, Dad. You can make that happen. No. You can. If the argument's big enough, and but both people have to be willing, though. That's the it issue. I mean, the discussion's over. The argument has to end. You have uh, to take the temperature down. Uh, so what you say is, okay, I understand we're not, we haven't gotten, gotten to closure on this. Let's stop now. We'll put on, we'll go watch TV or do something that we'd like to do, or just go get apart from each other. De-escalation. De-escalation. And then we'll, t- we'll take it up. Next time we come and we go, where were we? And most of the time we can't remember exactly where we were. So you kind of start at a much lower level. So there is a, you know, if you kind of make it, uh, and this is, this is not nothing new is never go to bed mad. It's almost biblical. Well, I think, I think a, a, also you have to be willing to focus on the we instead of the me in the discussion. Mm-hmm. If people, what I found was people who are in unhealthy relationships um, and when they would get into issues within the relationship, they were trying to prove themselves right instead of come to an understanding. And so I think, I think if someone, I mean, you tell me, I think if someone finds themselves whenever they are getting into a discussion that their side of the discussion gets squashed and dismissed, that's probably just not someone that you should be with. Cause I, I don't know, that sounds like a lack of respect for that person. And you can't really have a relationship without respect. Right. Uh, I think if that happens from time to time, okay. If it, if it's the, if the all it happens all the time, then I think you're right. Yeah. So, so I had four or five men to sort of become my models, my brother, you know, two or three teachers, Kohler, my fencing coach. And then you had grandma and mom. Right. So, and the whole, whole point with, with, uh, grandma was, was, one is that anything is possible if you open your mind and heart to it. Mm. And she said, what do you, she always said, what do you want? And she was, uh, as you have a tattooed on your chest, she was a great listener. Mm-hmm. And so she would start the question, what, what, so what do you want to want here? And so then it would become, so what, sh- what do we do first? Mm-hmm. Um, and that really become, became sort of, okay, if that's what you want, what do you do first? Well, first you have to understand what you want. So this is almost a, you know, a meme for most business schools. Mm. You're doing a business case or anything like that. What do you want? What's your mission? How do you get there? What's your steps and stuff like that? And so she was great at sort of teasing that stuff out. Um, as I said in the eulogy at her funeral, I said, I didn't realize at the time I go to her house and she'd always have something for me to fix you know, light bulb needs changing or that the fan was loose or something like that, something that involved tools. And she'd stand at the bottom of the ladder, hand me tools, and hand, and we'd be, and she'd just start, and she would hand me advice and we'd talk about life while we were doing that. Primarily because she got me busy. Then she was handing me several tools. She was handing me physical tools to do the job it was, but she's also handling me emotional tools. We got done. And we played cards the same way, you know. Grandma didn't care about emotions when it came to cards. She wanted to destroy you, and she would let you know. Well, she was split. She could destroy you happily and care about you personally at the same time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I still, got, I still have the video where she go, looks, at, looks at you square in the eye, puts her palm on the desk and goes. Has a squish me like a grape. Yeah. yeah. So... I was raised by, I was raised around a lot of really strong women, which is like, 
I was raised by a man who was raised by a strong woman. And then I had a strong example as a grandmother, as a mother uh, to, to follow. And that's probably why I, I have such high, I mean, I have high respect for people in general, but um, again, some of the behaviors I see coming from men, it just does not compute. Cause frankly, the, the women around us would eat us alive if we exhibited any of that behavior. Like it just wouldn't stand. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so you're you're fortunate that you're not shorter. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So okay, so you have all these examples. And now it's your turn. Now you have a son. That's me. Uh-huh. What were those like what were those first moments like when you realized did you have a moment where you're like okay, now it's on me? to form this mind or was it not that serious? Well, you know, to be real about it, you know, the first year you're pretty much, you know, goo. on your back goo. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for, I think the thing that used to rock people around me was I would change diapers in public. What would, what would rock people about that? Cause because men didn't do it, because the people my age didn't do that. God bless. I don't. Like, and, and I, I don't know that world. They, they go. You know, I can never do that. And, so, uh. and, and at that point, I you know, the honorary side of me would come out and it says, "Well, it's really pretty simple. You see, you have this little tab, <laughs> tab here, something like that. You got to watch out for that little pointy thing in the middle. <laughs> if it's a guy, because you know what, they will let go. And so, so you want me to show you how? <gasps> I'll be happy to show you how. <laughs> because I, I found that. I found that uh, amusing because they were. Uh, we call that sh they were shooting all over you. You shouldn't be. That was someone placing their values upon you. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing that because you are a man. And I. So now I'm really starting to grasp why I don't. Like I'm very much like mom in a lot of ways, but a lot of the toxic masculine ideas, like of what it takes to be a man or what I need to be in order to be considered masculine, I've just never adhered to. Like, I mean, yeah, I have aspects of me that, uh, that apply to that, but I've never looked at it as there's this set of rules and I have to be this to be a man. Like, that's silly to me because uh, to me, I also don't associate masculine and feminine with gender. I think that men can exhibit a lot more masculine behaviors, but so can women. I think it's, a, it's an energy. It's not a gender. Yeah, I, I, I always hate to call it a gender. It is, it is a behavior. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some uh, behaviors are more appropriate in a home setting or with children or in the, in the environments that females find themselves in, and some are more appropriate in other environments. So generally you have to be more assertive and things like that in, say, corporate environments or, you know, uh, yeah. competitive environments, things where things are competitive because – those are the traits that succeed. But at home, you don't need to do that. And so I, I always like the meme of the guy who who looks like a biker but can change a diaper. I mean, like, if you're a, if you've got this like, oh, I'm a biker image, and you get taken down by a poopy diaper, are you really that tough? Or are you just showing out for people? Yeah, that, that's one way to look at it. But the point is, is that the, your persona, max, masculinity, masculinity is really about uh, a persona you put on according to what environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. If you 
are in a combat zone, you want to be a toxic masculine person where you want to take out everyone in front of you. But that same person needs to come home and be able to be caring and loving and stuff like that. And it is a it is a a personality that you need to culture culture when you're in that environment. So, you know, so how do you switch? Or is it not? A, is it not switching? Is it just that's who you are? Like that's so. That's what I am witnessing a lot, especially now, is people have their idea of what they should be, and they exhibit it all the time, no matter the environment. Yeah. But I think that agility is something that's massively important because that sort of attitude, like you just told me, like doesn't isn't necessary in every environment. Right. So you can be strong, assertive. And kind at the same time. Yes, you can be. Uh, you can go take someone down and and you know break bones and stuff like that, and do it with the best of intentions. But the idea that that is a an exhibit a behavior you exhibit all the time to everyone, I think is is very short sighted because it's those behaviors to me are tools. Hmm. Uh, and that may sound like, well, behavior is a behavior. Well, behaviors are context-driven. Yeah. So your, your, your mom can tell who I'm talking to on the phone by my voice, my demeanor, how I sit. She can tell whether I'm talking up or talking down, you know, in terms of personal rank. Um she can even sometimes tell what country I'm talking to because I start mirroring the, the, the accent. Mm. So, but the point is, is that that's a, those are business behaviors. Mm. And so one of the challenges of working from home is you, you come out of a, a, a tense meeting where you're, you're having combat, but it's a combat of ideas or a, a political combat or something like that, which is also a, com, a, a contest of ideas. You come down to get a cup of coffee and, she, and you, you walk in and you say, well, what's that doing on the floor there? And she goes, Stick a sock in it. You're not at work. <laughs> Mom doesn't play. No, she doesn't play. She's like one of the sweetest ladies you'll ever meet, but she is not to be messed with either. Yeah, she she hates it when I'm in executive mode. Or, I mean, when I call you, I remember when you were there like, before you retired. You're like, "This is Paul Thompson." I was like, "This is your son. Turn it off." <laughs> yeah, exactly, because you probably called me in the middle of something. So the point is, is that behaviors are necessary for context. So if you were to give, say, I was a I was a kid, uh, and you were going to give me guidance with the perspective that you have now on what it means to be masculine or be a man, what guidance would you give childhood me? Well, I think the first one is to be good to your word. Hmm. And when you say you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. Because for me, that's, I don't know if that's a masculine thing or not, but mm -hmm. it is, it is sort of the table stakes. Secondly is understand that you have a variety of roles to play. Some of them are more male dominant, some are not. And, and to do those, those roles well, if you're going to be a father, be a father. If you're going to uh, do things that are uh, in masculine in nature, just do them well. Um, but the other part is to realize is that everyone 
is different around you, that, that there are times when tenderness is absolutely required. In fact, you should start there and escalate only if, escalate only if you have to. That understanding and compassion are stronger tools than, uh, you know, pressure and fear and stuff like that. You'll get much, you know, much further along that way. Um, golden rule applies. So for, for me, being masculine means using the right persona or tool for the context mm-hmm. and understanding what that is. It's not one size fits all. It means, uh, Doing the parts where the masculine side of you uh, fit. I mean, if you're stronger, use that strength that way, you know. Uh, but do that for the benefit of others. Um, and, it, and if time warrants it, then, you know, kick ass. But only if it warrants it. So you want to be that calm person that, that everyone respects because they know you can take care of business. But then be the compassionate person around the people around it, around you. I think the other other part is generosity. Mm-hmm. If you have uh, enough, if you are enough, you can be generous with yourself. And I think that's where people hold things to themselves because they fear that giving it away somehow diminishes them. Scarcity. Scarcity. Um, and you know, there was a lot of scarcity in my younger life and I still hang on to things longer than I probably should. But the one thing that you have is your time and your compassion. And that's, that's as limitless as you want it to be. Mm. Be generous. Mm. To me, that's, that is, um, part of, of being masculine, being a provider. It's a very traditional view that mm-hmm. males are providers females are providers too they they pro- either provide directly like a males do now as two income families that's true but guys got to provide the same thing that they did so you know the, the the roles and what the roles do uh have blended and it just it's it, it seems like it's less about who's doing what and more about is there balance mm-hmm. between the two of you do you guys, you guys can provide in different ways, but as long as you're providing in a way that makes sense for both of you and you both feel appreciated and respected and that you're not carrying the weight of the relationship alone, because that's a very isolating feeling, then it doesn't really matter who, who is in what role. And frankly, why do we need those roles? That I don't find that it's really that helpful. Well, I think, I think uh, you're, you should agree on what the roles are. Uh, if you're in a, in a, we're very much in a kind of a traditional role. Uh, so, and we've agreed that, that we like, we like that. Um, but having said that, one of the, one of the things I say when I'm being funny, ready? Mm-hmm. Is I wear the pants, but mom tells me when to put them on. <laughs> 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 because, um, in some respects, I am, I am, uh, at her, uh, back and call to do those things because yeah. that's what you agreed to because that's what we agreed to you know so you want me to go kill that okay projects are generally you know that looks hard you do it yeah <laughs> okay but um she is uh creative and sensitive and uh she has great skills with uh, things that 
I could do, mm-hmm. but I choose not to because that's her space. And I think that's the other thing about that is that I don't have to be good at everything because we're a team. Mm. So I think the thing that uh, we have worked on is how to be interdependent. I need you to do that, mm. and you need me to do this. And I need her to do the laundry because if I do the laundry, it doesn't come out well. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean I can't. But at the end of the day, we've, we've selected um, what our relationships are, are based on what our roles are, what, what, what we do in a day and stuff like that. And then when we come into conflict, we sit, we try to try to sort it out. You know, well, do you want to do that or do I want to do that? What's been interesting is as we've retired, those things have gotten much more blurred because mm-hmm. I have time. Mm. So you're home now. You do that. <laughs> yeah. So so and that's that's when that's the whole nature of the relationship. You start out with one set of expectations and one set of roles, uh, and then it evolves. You know, and due to a circumstance, you know, could be anything from having a kid to have you know having an injury or. In case of uh, your grandma, for example, we were full-time, not full-time, but we were caretakers for them. So all that changed the dynamic within the family. And we sat down and negotiated what that meant. Mm. Her load was higher because of that. And my, I had to pick up uh, other aspects of what she was doing in order to do that. And, but it was many cases we say, okay, how do we do this? And we do this as a team. Mm. And that's, that's probably the, the central point of any relationship is, is Understanding what where the boundaries are and understanding what the roles and responsibilities are, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be all that formal. But um, and what you like and don't like. In many cases, you offend someone because you don't know what they don't like. I I want to say that I am. It is never lost on me how lucky I am to be raised the way that I was, in the environment that I was. Um, allowed to be who I am, even if it didn't make sense to you at times. True. Because it was out so far outside of of the way that you view things. I've always been kind of unconventional in the way, in the things that I am interested in and want to do. Or maybe not unconventional, but more so like not as many people pursue the things that I do because it's definitely less stable in a lot of well, ways. I, I think on the in terms of the, you know, dealing with the public and stuff like that, I did have a model, and that was David, your bro- yeah. your, your uh, my older brother, your uncle, in that in his own way, he goes through the same, you know, he's a musician. He's, he plays in lounges. He gets hecklers, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So sometimes I would talk to him about how he handled that and kind of use that to kind of advise me as how to talk to you about things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being that he's older than I am, his usual response was, you know, well, Fuck them if if them if they can't take a joke. Yeah, uh, that's not quite. That doesn't quite work in my that's world. <laughs> doesn't quite work in your world. And he finally looks. He looks at your world and goes, "Ew." Yeah. So, but um, um, I'm not done appreciating you. So, so I don't need guidance in this moment. I want you to listen. Okay. Um, I have an audience with a lot of people who didn't have that system, and I have borne witness to like how damaging that can be. So I know that throughout my life, you've talked about how proud of me that you are, but I want to say 
as an adult, now that I can look at you, how proud of you I am and how grateful I am to the world that you provided for me. Because you, while you did have grandma and you had male figures throughout the course of time, you didn't have the same safety and consistency that I've had in my life. And I'm just really grateful that regardless of where you came from, because a lot of people pass that on and don't take time to look at it. The fact that you made a choice to do it different, to do it in a way that made sense for now, instead of just going through what you have gone through, I'm immensely grateful for that. It's made my life. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I hadn't had that sort of environment to be in, regardless of who caused it. I am proud of you because you are who I mirror. I think people will see that throughout the course of this, this interview that how similar we are. Um, so I mirrored you and I turned into a good man, which means you're a good man. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Do I have a hug? Okay. Stay there. I know. Don't move. Thank you so much for my dad. It's like weird saying that on here for giving me his time, giving me his insight and also helping me to become the man I am today. If you really enjoyed this episode, I wish you could reach out to him, but he doesn't do social media. So leave him alone. But if you would like to support this podcast, review, rate, share, and also go over to patreon.com slash unfiltered friends and support if you can. Tell me what was the part of this episode that stood out the most to you. And until next week, this has been Unfiltered Friends.